This morning we're going to consider a passage of scripture <clears throat> which makes clear that God as a heavenly father makes demands of his children. Okay, God is not a permissive father that just says, live the way, however you want, I'm fine with that. No, he's a father we're going to see today. He says, I expect you to be obedient children. He's a father who says, I expect you to imitate me. You should be holy as I am holy. He's a father who says, you should live out your time on earth with the fear of the Lord and conduct yourselves in fear in all your behavior. In other words, God is a God who says, I actually expect you to love me with all your heart, soul, and might. I'm a God who expects you to love your neighbor as yourself. As, as yourself. And so I ask you, how do you hear those demands? How do they wash over your mind and your heart? Uh, do they fill you with excitement or do they fill you with dread? Do you find yourself motivated to be an obedient child or do you find yourself exasperated by the thought of obey your father who is in heaven? As we talked about last week, there's a lot of things that figure into how we hear these demands. One of them, not the only one, but one of them is your relationship with your, your earthly father. As I mentioned last week, my dad never really made any demands of me. I, I can't remember a time where I made an ethical or moral decision with the thought in mind, I want to do this because this would please my dad, or I don't want to do this because that would displease my dad. I found out later that he, he thought that by the time a kid turned 15, they're kind of on their own. You make your own decisions in terms of faith and morality. And so that explains a lot in, in retrospect. But when I came to Christ, I didn't really have an intuitive understanding of what it means to obey my heavenly father. I've talked to other people who had a very exacting and harsh father. And every time they read a command in scripture, the voice of their father, it comes across in the voice of their father. Talk to people that really believe that God is a bully and he's controlling and even manipulative. I'm also happy to report that I've talked to other people, even this week, some of you who told me, my dad was so generous. He was so kind that I just had this healthy desire to please him. I wanted to obey my dad. Consequently, those people, generally speaking, they welcome the demands of their heavenly father. And that's what's advocated in scripture is that we go to God and we, we say to him, God, because you have been so generous to me, because you have welcomed me into your family, you've adopted me as your son, your daughter in such a comprehensive, generous way that I, in response, I want to please you. I want to obey you. I trust you. I believe that you know what's best for me more than I know. So today we consider 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. And I've stated the three main points, and they're found on the, the outline in your bulletin. I've stated them in, in, uh, in the form of affirmations. These are things that we can actually say. These are, these are things that we believe if we really get the type of Heavenly Father that God really is. <clears throat> the first is this. We set our hope completely on the grace that we'll receive at the return of Christ. And this is a mindset of someone who's made peace with the reality that we're exiles here on earth. This world is not our home. This is what we read in verse 13. Peter says, therefore, in light of the fact that God has caused you to be born again in a very extravagant, in a very comprehensive way, therefore, 
preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's an interesting way to describe the return of Christ, the revelation of Christ. And sometimes the New Testament authors use that expression. The implication is that now, in in a certain sense, Christ is hidden. Okay, if you want to ignore him, if you want to say, I don't believe Jesus is Lord, you can absolutely do that. Most most people on the planet actually say that. But there will be a day when Jesus is revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Nobody will say that. Peter's point is that during this time of hiddenness, live in light of the day when Jesus will be revealed. Don't pin your hopes on what you can expect to experience and and achieve in this life. Pin your hopes on what will be given to you, the grace that we'll receive when Jesus returns. As we talked about last week, this is a very comprehensive thing, what Jesus is going to give us when he returns. Uh, Peter says that, that God keeps an inheritance for us in heaven. It's untouchable. It is definite. It's guaranteed. We'll receive praise, honor, and glory. That's the reward of our faith. Peter actually says that we will receive our full salvation when Christ returns. So that includes the redemption of our bodies. Our our salvation will extend even to our bodies. We'll be given a glorified body like, like the body of Jesus after he was raised from the dead. And so Peter says that these are future realities. But if we're not careful, these future realities will seem remote. They will seem irrelevant in our everyday life. That's why Peter mentions here, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. He's acknowledging that the the pull of this world is so strong and it's so relentless that if you and I just, just allow our minds to go where they normally go, if we just let our minds go, then we will live as if this life is all there is. And so Peter's encouraging us to have this tenacity and to maintain this mindset that says, I am here on earth for a very, very short time, just a small amount of time. My citizenship is in heaven. I seek to please my father who is in heaven. Therefore, uh, and when Christ is revealed, I'll receive more grace than I can fathom. Therefore, I'm going to live this day in light of that day. Okay? So the idea is pretty simple. We're supposed to let the the future reality press back into the present. But a presupposition of this verse is that what we do in this earth actually matters. We're not just marking time, okay? We're not just wasting time until we get the inheritance. Now, what we do in this life matters. We're actually, you know, Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're supposed to progressively see God's kingdom come, of course, in the church, in the body of Christ, but also in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. And so we we experience a foretaste of the new heaven and the new earth. And that's the foundation of our witness. We live with this hope. We set our hope completely on the grace that will be brought to us on that day. In chapter three, Peter's actually going to say that when people ask you about this hope, in other words, people should notice, they say, what's the deal with you? You look like you're, you live like you're living for other things and other, you're otherworldly in the way you live your life. He says, when people ask you about this hope, you should be ready to give an account, give a defense. And so that's what Peter's advocating here. Our behavior and our experience, they're often our initial witness for Christ. 
and we follow it up with words, but that's our, the, a compelling witness. And so daily and weekly disciplines are crucial in order to prepare our minds for action, in order to remain sober-minded. And so in this way, we set our hope completely on the grace we'll receive at the return of Jesus. Second affirmation in verses 14 through 16. If we really understand who God is, we live as obedient children, being holy as our Father is holy. And by the way, some of you can wholeheartedly affirm these things here and now. Others of you can say, you know, I don't really buy that yet. I just encourage you, consider these things. Consider that, that this can be a reality for you. But notice in these verses what God expects of us. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So what does God expect of us here? God expects us to be obedient children. He actually expects us to do the things that he commands us to do, okay? There's nothing unclear about that. As obedient children, God expects us to quit indulging the passions of the flesh. He calls it your former ignorance. Uh, not flattering, but when we come to our senses, that's, that's the way we think about it. To, to quit indulging the passions of the flesh like we did before we came to Christ. As a matter of fact, God says, just like I told the nation of Israel, you shall be holy for I am, as I am holy, you also be holy yourselves in all your conduct. Okay, so this is what God demands of us. Again, I would ask you, how do you hear this? Does this sound reasonable? Does this sound obvious? Does this sound right? Well, I, just, I would just, just acknowledge that what we're talking here, it's, it's pretty simple, but it's really hard to actually buy. And so uh, how you hear these demands depends on a lot of things. But I want us to consider these demands through the grid of the parable of the prodigal son. When Jesus wanted to communicate what our Heavenly Father is like and how we should relate to him, Jesus told this story. It's found in Luke 15. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger son came to his father and he said, I want my share of the estate. So he's basically telling his dad, I wish you were dead, so I had your money right now. Shockingly, the dad said, okay. And so he divided his wealth and he gave this son his portion of the estate. And so this, this younger, younger son went off to a distant land and Jesus said he squandered his estate with loose living. And so you can use your imagination. So he just blew the entire inheritance. And he, he became so desperate that he got a job feeding pigs. And for a Jewish kid, that's about as, as low as you could sink. And so here he is, he's feeding these pigs, and he was hungry. He didn't have enough to eat, and so he longed to eat what the pigs were eating. And then he remembered his father's house. And, and he came to his senses, and he remembered... Even my father's servants have more than I do. They have plenty to eat. They have shelter. They have protection. And so he rehearsed this speech. He said, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to tell my father, I'm not worthy to be your son, but I want to reenter the household as a servant. And so the, the child makes his way home, and Jesus says, while he was still a long way off, 
Okay, and so apparently this this dad was in the driveway. He was looking down the road. He was hoping, he was longing for this child to come home. And God's default is always mercy. Unless you really won't have it, he will show you mercy, okay? And so he's looking for his son. And when he saw his son, he ran to him, he hugged him, and he kissed his son. And that's when this boy, is this younger son, he launched into this this, this speech he had rehearsed, I'm not worthy to be your son. I want to reenter the household as a servant. The father ignored that. And he said, bring a ring, put it on his finger, bring a robe, put sandals on his feet, kill the fatted calf. We're going to celebrate. Okay. And so that's this story Jesus told. Now, let me re-ask the question. Is it reasonable for that father to tell that son I don't want you running off to a distant land anymore. I don't, I don't want you to return to the ignorance in which you lived when you were squandering your estate. I want you to stay home. I actually want you to imitate me. This is where there's security. This is where there's abundance. This is where there's wisdom. And so is it reasonable? Is it good for that father to say that to that son? Of course it is. He had come to his senses when he was feeding pigs. He agreed with that. And so the father's just telling him, that's the way I want you to live. And so if you relate to the younger brother, in other words, if you have a past, it's appropriate, it's reasonable for the father to tell you, don't go back to the former way of life. That's a dangerous, a dangerous, destructive way to live your life. And as you know, the, the passions of the flesh may be so strong that you might be pulled, even though you know better, you might be pulled back to that way of life. And you might even think, well, what's the big deal? My sins are paid for. I can always come back home, right? Well, Jesus' story corrects that. I say, no, 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 never leave home. Stay home with your father. Adopt his way of life. It's good. It's right, it's safety, it's protection. That's where you find freedom. Now, there, there was another boy in this story. He's the older brother. He never left home. And uh, he was not very happy when the father took part of his estate and threw this big party for the, for the son. You even get the impression that he was actually almost a little bit jealous. And so he's like... My little brother, he got the best of both worlds. He got to go off and be wild for a period of time, and he gets to come back home. And so he, he resented the generosity of his father. And so if you came to Christ early in life, you've never really misbehaved in the, in the ways people see or the ways that are famous. Um, if you've never misbehaved that way, you might relate more to the elder brother, and you might have a hard time with when people with these wild testimonies get all the, all the attention. You might even be jealous for that way of life, like in Psalm 73, just envious of the wicked. Well, Jesus would say to you what the father said to his older son. He said, no, what I've had, my household, it's always been yours. It's still mine. There's plenty. There's abundance in my house. Don't be jealous of the wicked. Stay home. And so if we get this, we will, make, we will make this affirmation. This is just what, this is who we are. This is how we live. We live as obedient children, being holy as our Father is holy. And so we affirm that. 
And finally, in verses 17 through 21, we affirm this. We live with the fear of the Lord throughout this life, knowing that our Father is also the judge. Peter's pretty intense in this passage. Notice what he says in verse 17. And if you call on him as Father, our Father who is in heaven, if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. And so Peter's just reminding his readers of something that's true throughout the Bible, that our father is also the judge. He's the judge of everyone, including believers. And we know that ultimately our our destiny, our salvation, won't be based on our deeds. Paul is very clear in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not as a result of works. And so you don't have to earn your salvation in any way. At the same time, the New Testament, really the whole Bible is consistent that God does judge our works, the actual things that we do. He judges the quality of our works. He judges our our motives and and all sorts of things. And he rewards those who who do their their good deeds unto him. And we don't understand how it works, but, but it's really clear that God is a God who rewards those who seek him. So among other things, this means that God doesn't really evaluate us according to our intentions. So, you know, I intended to give my second coat to the person who didn't have one, but I never got around to it. Does that count? I intended to? Or he doesn't judge us basically based on our emotions. My heart went out to that person. I didn't show him any compassion, but my heart went out to him. That counts, doesn't it? Or God doesn't evaluate us based on our knowledge. I knew what was right. I mean, I could explain it. I could talk about it on Sunday morning all over the place, but I didn't really do it. Does that count? No, he says, God judges our deeds. And in the Bible, your, your deeds are an accurate reflection of your faith. James said, faith without works, it's really not a living faith. That's a, a dead faith. Just like our words are an accurate reflection of our heart, our deeds are an accurate reflection of our faith. And the Bible, I, I think, pretty clearly has a bias for action when it comes to, to good works. Paul even told Titus that we should be zealous for good works. And I think sometimes we can overanalyze. And analysis is good, okay? Don't mishear me. We can overanalyze our motives and our plan of action. And we want to get everything right to the point where we're paralyzed and we don't really just naturally do the good things we should be doing. And this doesn't mean we mindlessly get busy and and just do a bunch of good things. Many scriptures make clear that God cares about our motives. Matthew 6, when you give alms, when you pray, when you fast, you do it for God. You don't do it to show off before other people. But we should have a bias for action, for simply and reflexively and decisively doing the things that please God. And Peter points out here that our father judges impartially. He doesn't play favorites. And this means uh, on, on different ends of the spectrum, it means that we can't presume upon God. You say, well, God knows my heart, so whether I really obey him or whether I really keep his commandments, God knows my heart. No, we don't. He judges impartially. And on the other hand, we shouldn't insult God by saying, I can never please God. I can never do anything that God finds uh, pleasure in. No, he does. He sees in secret, and your father will repay in secret. He really is a God who, who gives rewards. And, and Paul says, or Peter says, since this is the case, 
conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. During the short period of time when we're on earth, before we get home, during this time, conduct yourselves with fear. And so throughout the Bible, we're told about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of wisdom. And it's, it's easy to say what it's not. It's not cowering in, in terror. We're not terrorized and traumatized by a harsh heavenly father. Uh, it's not that. But what is it? Uh, there's a lot of different, different understandings. I, I think um, Dallas Willard captures the core concept as well as anybody in his book, Re- Renovation of the Heart. He quotes at Proverbs 9.10, which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And he says this, he says, one begins to get smart when he or she fears being crosswise of God. That's when you begin to get smart, when you really care. I don't want to get crosswise with God. He says, fear of not doing what he wants or not being as he requires. He says, fear is the anticipation of harm. The intelligent person recognizes that his or her well-being lies in being in harmony with God and what God is doing in the kingdom. God is not mean, but he is dangerous. It is the same with other great forces he has placed in reality. Electricity and nuclear power, for example, are not mean, but they are dangerous. One who does not, in a certain sense, worry about God simply isn't smart. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this harm that you, you, you might uh, anticipate, this, this fear of God you have, it's not a fear of condemnation, okay? Uh, the, the judgment that we deserved fell on Jesus Christ on the cross. And so Jesus has paid for our sin. But our fear of the Lord is more wrapped up in the relational fallout from not trusting God and not trusting his word. As Willard says, we simply, on many different levels, are not smart if we don't care what God thinks about us and what he thinks about our lives and how we're living. And verses 18 through 20 remind us why this is reasonable, why it's right. And he talks about the price of our redemption. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so God has redeemed us. He has bought us back at the highest possible price, the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's only right, it's only smart, someone who would want us that badly and and redeem us at such a high price. It's only smart that we want to please him and we pay attention to what he thinks about our behavior. Therefore, when we get this, we say, of course, we live with the fear of the Lord throughout this life, knowing that our father is also the judge. And so that's, that's the demands. That's, that's what we affirm if we really get the demands of God. By way of application, I want to give you a simple grid for applying this passage to your life. And uh, so we've got three, three points here, three steps. The first is this. First, identify an area of obedience. In other words, what specifically 
does the word say that you should be doing? And this is something relevant to your, to your life. Um, for example, today's past passage mentions a couple of times that God expects us to avoid the passions of our former way of life. And so if you were like the younger brother, identify specific things that need to be in your past. You need to, to continue to avoid. It could be sexual sins, could be dishonesty or deceit or lying or drunkenness, could be a lot of different things. But identify a specific area of obedience. And second, discern why our Father's demands are good and reasonable, okay? If you don't understand why it's good to obey this, to do take this course of action or not take this course, if you don't understand what your Father's heart and why it's good and right and best, you might try to obey and screw up some, some willpower, but that doesn't last very long. If you really want to obey for, for the long haul, joyfully, you have to understand your father's heart. And so try to see his commands through the eyes of the father in the parable of the prodigal son. Try to understand, see him as the father who knows more than you do, and he wants you to avoid the destruction and the heartache of the old way of life. And so, for example, if you've identified sins you need to avoid, you might read Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. They're written from the perspective of a father who's telling his son, as you go out into the world, these are the things you're going to encounter. Be sure you take the path of wisdom or else you will regret it. You'll bring untold heartache and destruction into your life and the lives of the people around you. And so, um, understand why it's reasonable and good to obey God. And then third, by his grace, take specific steps of obedience. So I, I would encourage you to come up with a specific plan of action. You know, not suggesting it's, it's easy, um, not suggesting it's necessarily simple, but I am suggesting that we can take steps of obedience. We are responsible. We're able to respond. And so uh, the scriptures have a clear bias for action when it comes to putting aside the former way of life, adopting new ways of thinking, speaking, and acting. And chances are you're probably going to need a brother or sister in Christ. You're going to need somebody else to think through these things with you. We have all these blind spots. You need somebody you trust. You can just lay out your life and say, help me here. What, what does God command? Why is it good? What are some, some possibilities, some steps I could take when it comes to obedience? And so I'd encourage you to work, work on this this week. Identify something. Work an area through and with this grid. And this is one way that we can taste and see that the Lord is good as our Heavenly Father. And as we understand God's heart and as we trust God's heart, we'll progressively find that obedience makes more sense than disobedience. One last perspective and kind of summarize what we're talking about. You know, most of my childhood memories of being with my dad happened either in the shop or in the garage or in the driveway. When he was working on something, I just went out and watched him. When I was about 12 years old, my dad was out in the driveway. He was working on our uh, Volkswagen Beetle. And he had the, the hood up, so that's the back of it, right? He was working on this little car. And as he was working on it, he accidentally knocked, uh, knocked, uh, 
knocked over a whole set of sockets, and they fell down into this little cavity right beside the engine in this little well, and his hands were so big he couldn't fish them out, and so I volunteered to try. And so with my little, my little 12-year-old hands, I put them in there one at a time, and I fished out these sockets, and I was just beaming. I mean, I did something my dad could not do, Okay. Uh, But it came at a cost because down in that cavity, there was a sheet metal screw that was sticking out. And every time I pulled my hand out, it it scratched me just a little bit. So by the time I got all those out, it looked like I'd been in a cat fight. But my dad was so proud of me and he was so thankful that he gave me a dollar, a whole dollar bill. And this may sound like a strange thing to you, but when it comes to my early childhood, I can't think of a time when I felt as close to my dad as I did at that moment. I had done something that pleased him, and he appreciated me, and he rewarded me. And if nothing like this has ever happened to you, you might be thinking, you know, your dad spoiled it all. He paid you off. All I can say is that's not the way I experienced it. I knew that my dad loved me and appreciated me, and I would do anything to please him more. That's the the dynamic of the passage we've been talking about. Our Heavenly Father makes demands of us. He wants us to do certain things. He wants us to avoid other things. And some of these things are costly. Some of them involve suffering and great personal cost but he notices, and he wants us to know that he notices. Your father who sees in secret will repay you. And some of the the rewards we get do come in this life. We get these satisfying things in our lives. They just flow from a life that's that's, uh, aligned with God. But a lot of them wait until the return of Christ. And on that day, God gives rewards that are fully appropriate and fully satisfying. And so we live with that knowledge. And as we please our Father, and as we experience his pleasure, it makes us want to trust him. It makes us want to obey him. It makes us want to represent him all the more. Would you pray with me? Would you trust God for these things? God, here in this room, we probably hear these, these demands in a lot of different ways. God, we pray that as a, as a people and as individuals, we would, we would understand your heart. We would understand your generosity. God, we would see you like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. God, keep us from accusing you of, of things that are not true. May we not question your motives, for you are the God. You're the, the judge who is impartial. God, in the tough things in our lives, in relationships, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, we pray that your kingdom would come, your will would be done. We pray, God, that we would experience as we seek you and as we obey you a foretaste of the new heaven and the new earth. And we pray, God, that it would be satisfying for us and it would be compelling for the people around us. We pray, God, that we would represent you well and have opportunities to to give a defense and give a response of why we set our hope on you, why we trust you. And so, God, lead us in these these areas of obedience. No doubt specific areas of obedience came to mind for, for many of us. We pray, God, that this week 
that will will understand what you want of us and will understand your motives and will understand what obedience look like looks like in practical ways. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.